Jonathan told me to wait. <laughs> Jared told me just immediately before the service began. Um, that's an important video for us to understand what we're headed into. Let me share the passage of Scripture, and that's why we're still standing here. It's a very short verse, but it is very telling about the situation that Jesus was in and the church that he knew in his day. Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, this fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. You may be seated. Have you noticed that steeples are disappearing? I don't know if you have encountered that. Now, I'm not telling you that, that anyone is dismantling steeples from church buildings that are already in existence. I mean, Statesboro is covered with steeples. There are churches almost on every corner that have steeples. But have you noticed, have you noticed that the new church buildings that are going up here and in other places very, very often do not have steeples? Have you asked yourself the question, why could that be the case? Why is it that somebody didn't know that if you build a church, you build a steeple, right? You put, you put a steeple on top of the building. In fact, that's sort of what marks it as the church. But get this, especially in contemporary congregations that are forming themselves and building these buildings, you won't see, you will not see a steeple there. It is not because they are ashamed of the gospel. I think I figured out what it is. It's because steeples come with a lot of baggage. The culture around us looks at the church in ways that the church is not able to see itself. In fact, what we've just seen on this video is a lot of evidence about that, that, that there are people that look at the church as being less friendly than we might think it to be. It is not an architectural oversight that there are not steeples on the newest of the church buildings. It is trying to fly under the radar of some people to be able to get the gospel of Jesus Christ to them without some of the baggage that might be attached. Something that appears just a little less churchy might be the very thing that gets through to the heart of someone who has so much suspicion that they don't really wish to be a part of what we call the church. For the next six weeks, we're going to be talking about when the church gets it wrong. And this is a study that 
is put together by Adam Hamilton, who is the pastor of the largest United Methodist Church in the denomination. It's in Leewood, Kansas, just outside of Kansas City. He has 14,000 members or better that are a part of that church. But it is an insightful study that he has come to. And the chance for us to engage is a wonderful opportunity for us to do this, this work of being honest with ourselves about how we have perhaps not been the church that Jesus Christ wanted us to be. Can we be honest enough to say that not only have we done great damage in huge ways in, in millenniums past, but even in recent decades, we continue, especially in our culture, to miss the mark. And we focus on things that Christ himself did not focus on in his ministry. I have shared with some of you before a story um, from my past. I was just a, a few years ago, I was, I was in a mall, and I was, I was sitting and waiting. Sue was shopping, and I was sitting on a bench in the mall, and I was seated there beside a grandmother and her granddaughter, and um, just in casual conversation, I overheard them talking, and so I was sitting there, and, and it was in the community that I was serving as a pastor, and so I, I asked the question finally, you know, pastors have got to do this, um, well, do you go to a church, you know? And the little girl volunteered the answer to me, not the grandmother, but the little girl was the one. She was maybe four or five years old. She said to me, she said, no, she said, we don't go to church. She said, my daddy loves Jesus, but he doesn't like the church. And I thought to myself, what damage have we done in this family? How far does that go? And how can it be repaired? How can it be repaired? You and I have a responsibility, and you may say to yourself, I'm new to this, you know, it's not my fault. I didn't come here. But you're a part of the larger thing that we call church, that Christ is trying to do something that is significant in sharing his love with the world, but we're not in some of our ventures, our church ventures, we are not doing the things that Christ would have us do. Our goal should be to set things right. Mahatma Gandhi is one of the most respected leaders of modern history. Now, you know that he grew up, of course, in India in this Hindu family on the west coast of that nation. And over the process of 
his life, he observed how very damaging culture can be when left unchecked. And he decided that he was going to be a voice for a new way of living in India. At first, he said, no one listened to him. In fact, when they did listen, they laughed. But then when they began to pay attention, they became angry with him and threw him in jail. And then he says, and then we won. (laughs) He was this incredible presence in India. He was for the easing of poverty, for sure, but he was also for opposing British taxation, expanding women's rights. He sought religious plurality so that there could be this amiable way of communication amidst people who were of different faith streams. E. Stanley Jones, have you ever heard that name? E. Stanley Jones was this Methodist missionary that years ago went to India and befriended the people there. In fact, so much so did he befriend the people there and was befriended by the people there that he, in his last days, went back to India and died in that country because he thought of that as being his beloved India. While he was there, while he was there, You know what happened? He developed this deep friendship with Mahatma Gandhi. This Methodist missionary developed this deep friendship with Mahatma Gandhi to the point that E. Stanley Jones actually wrote a very laudatory biography of this Hindu man. Because he saw what? E. Stanley Jones saw a whole lot of Christ in Mahatma Gandhi. In fact, he spoke to Mahatma Gandhi and he said to him, he said, you're always quoting Jesus. You know, you're using so much of his Sermon on the Mount and in your referring to Jesus Christ, the odd thing to me is that you seem to just be adamantly opposed to being actually a follower of Jesus. They, they were close friends to be able to share like that, weren't they? And Mahatma Gandhi responded to him in this way. He said, I don't reject your Christ. He said, I love your Christ. It's just that so many of you Christians are so unlike Christ. Boy, that's scathing, isn't it? Think about this. A Hindu telling us that we don't look like his idea of what a Christian should be. Now, I tell you that in order that you would have this sense with me of conviction that we've got to do it better. But also that you would know this is not something new. We didn't create this. 
it's not just our generation. Here in this study, Adam Hamilton is pointing out to us something very important for us to realize that 16 to 29-year-olds are, are just not connecting at all with the church in many, many ways. 40% of them. Did you get that? 40% are not connecting at all. 20% of those are considering themselves atheist. And it's reaction to a church that they do not want to be a part of. But we didn't create this. But we've perhaps made the matter's worth because we are part of the church that is seen as judgmental and homophobic and hypocritical and too political and, and particularly insensitive to the world around us. Have you ever been told to tie a string around your finger in order that you might remember something important? I've, I've never actually done that, but I can remember as a child that my mother would say, oh, if you need to remember something, tie a string around your finger. It's sort of a good idea. If, if I were to encourage you to do anything today, tie a string around your finger. And call into remembrance the very essence of who Christ is. This is not something that is so very difficult to do. You know the essence of Christ, don't you? You remember that Jesus was approached by Pharisees at a number of occasions, but he he was asked the question, okay, what's the greatest commandment of all? And Jesus comes back with a twofold answer. He says, well, you know these because they're directly out of the scripture for you and for me. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he says, this is the biggie. There's another one that's just like it. Can y'all tell me what it is? Y'all know this, don't you? Love your neighbors yourself. I mean, we know it. I can guarantee you I can guarantee you that even those non-Christians that may be a part of the community around us, they know that answer too. Because as the little girl said, my daddy loves Jesus, but he doesn't like the church. You and I need to get back to the very essence of who Jesus was in the way we operate and in the way that we do church. Anything less than that is the undoing, is the very undoing of what Christ is up to in the world. You remember Jesus said, love your enemies. We've developed the reputation of being very heatedly opposed to our enemies as if somehow that is the role that we have to take in order to represent Jesus in the world. The only ones that Jesus spoke to vehemently, it seems to me, were the good upstanding church people that were getting it all wrong in his day. You remember that Jesus said to his disciples... 
Others will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. This is not so very complicated. I had a dear member of a church that I pastored who ran a Stuckey's restaurant. Do any of you remember Stuckey's restaurant? This one was located on Hartley Bridge Road in South Macon. It was just off the interstate, and she ran the place. She actually lived in an apartment at the back of the Stuckey's and would come out early in the morning, and she had people helping her, of course, but she would start the day there with the breakfasts, and they would sell all kinds of trinkets and novelties to unsuspecting folk that were passing by on the interstate. I would go there and, and often have coffee with her and with a group of, of folk that were meeting there. What always impressed me was how intent she was, this precious lady, on making Jesus real in that place. She had a sign on the wall there that simply said, love a mean person today. Isn't that great? Love a mean person today. She would not let anyone rob her of her love for the world. Why? Because Christ was so real for her. Not this churchiness, not this religiosity. She wanted it to be very, very real. The church can rob you of this if you're not careful. You and I have a responsibility to help each other with this. These parables that are a part of this chapter, this 15th chapter, they're often called the, the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, or the parable of the prodigal son, the lost son. But you know, they could just as easily be called the parable of the found sheep, or the parable of the found coin, or the parable of the found son. This very positive and loving reaction, the very nature of God. This is, this is what we're called to be in the world. And in fact, we better get busy doing it and doing it right. Or else there's no telling where the church will be in another generation. Because there is evidence that the generation that is around us right now, the younger ones are very willing to just jettison the church and go their own way. We need to help each other. To tell you the truth, this, this is what life groups are about. It, this, is, this is the nature of that. It's not the only way to be Christian. I mean, Jesus didn't invent life groups. I mean, now you might look at it a little more closely and might say to yourself, well, weren't his, weren't his disciples sort of a life group? Huh, huh, maybe so. Maybe Jesus did invent life groups. The idea of helping each other to be 
fully engaged in what it means to be a follower of Jesus. That's what that is about. Do you hear today the sense of God's calling for us? Now, I have to, I have to admit to you that I'm a recovering Pharisee, okay? I am a cradle Methodist. My, this is a confessional. My daddy is now a retired Methodist preacher. It's worse than that. I've got two uncles that are retired Methodist preachers. It's worse than that. I've got a brother who is a Methodist preacher. I married a Methodist preacher's daughter. It is bad, friends. Let me tell you. It has gone genetically crazy. We, we are as much Levites as you can be. I am, I am a recovering, I am a recovering Pharisee. But I want to get this right, don't you? Come on, some of you know, some of you have been a part of the church as long as I have. But even if you're fairly new to the church, don't you want to get this right? Don't you want to be Christ in the world? Not just the church in the world, but to be Christ in a new way. In this world that is in such need. These Pharisees, they came and they said, grumbling, they said, this fellow welcomes sinners, he even eats with them. Boy, I wish that accusation was being leveled against us some. Do you see what we're being called to? We're called to be a sensitive people sensitive to the world around us, non-judgmental, welcoming, loving in the way that Christ was. You remember the Apostle Paul said, if you have not love, if you have not love, you're nothing. Not even, not even, not even just a drop of Jesus in you if you have no love. I pray that God would help us. Some of you may have read the book that came out a few years back. It was called Blue Like Jazz. And in that book, one of the stories that's told is that there was this confessional booth that was put up on campus by this young fella. And, and people would come into the confessional booth and they would be ready to confess their sins to the priest, the guy that was dressed as a priest that was there. And when they would start, he would say, wait a minute. He would say, this works both ways. We have a lot of confessing to do as the church. And so the priest on this side of the table began confessing the sins of the church to the ones that came in. They said that, so many lives were changed. How is it that you and I will look at ourselves in order to change the ways that others look at us? 
as we come to the end of this time together, I want to give you an opportunity to come to kneel here or to spend time in your thoughts confessionally that the church would be the true image of Christ that Christ intends it to be. Let's bow our heads for just a moment. Gracious Lord, we thank you for the ways in which you have been a blessing to us. And we pray for your forgiveness. Help us. We know that we've made very grave errors in judgment about the ways in which we've communicated in your name. Forgive us for the wrong that we have done. And I pray that you'd help us. You have our attention. And we want to repair our damage, even the damage that others may have, may have done in years past. Help us to truly be the presence of Christ in this community. Send your spirit among us and help us to be your loving essence in the world today. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.